Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime misconduct and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to again discuss the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, AMLA 2020, with our guest, Matt Bybin. As I mentioned in the first episode, this is the most comprehensive set of reforms to U.S. anti-money laundering laws since the passage of the USA Patriot Act in 2001. While there's a lot to the act, there are some incredibly important changes and enhancements that should have an immediate and long-lasting impact on anti-money laundering. Joining us again for part two of this special edition of Fraud Eat Strategy is Matt Bybin. Matt is an anti-money laundering expert and litigation partner in law firm Gibson Dunn. Thank you for joining us again today, Matt. You talked a little bit about defensive SAR filing. And in a worst case scenario, defensive SAR filing is maybe an organization trying to overcompensate for criticisms that they've received from regulators that they're not filing enough SARS, thinking that a quantitative response is appropriate when what they're really looking for is a qualitative and quantitative response. So what are the dangers? You know, what is defensive SAR filing? And then what are the regulators really driving at here? It kind of feeds into the de-risking issue that they're also, you know, identifying. But defensive filing is kind of a negative characterization of knee-jerk response to negative information that ends up not being valuable to law enforcement and ends up being viewed by the institution as protecting it, even though it doesn't really add to the accumulated knowledge and information that law enforcement would like to have as part of an investigation. And so there's those, the tensions between when to file and not, but there's also this tension, you know, as to what to do next and whether, you know, as a result of filing SARS, you want to quote unquote de-risk your, your book. And that means exiting relationships of clients where there are from law enforcement or there's a lot of internal scrutiny in SARS because of the nature of the business that they're in. And, you know, this, the AMLAW and the other kind of guidance that is coming out is trying to balance the interests of the bank regulators, but also of other institutions, including Department of Justice, and keeping people in the financial system and not moving them out of the financial system. And so, you know, those questions of how you deal with the unbanked or people at the margin to keep them from going to Hawaladars or loan sharks or others is, you know, a central question. And they're going to study. This is one of the areas of study is what to do about, you know, these efforts. And any bank, you know, is thinking about these issues is going to think, is it worth it to us? And it, it reminds me, and you and I had talked before about the Riggs scandal, you know, the Washington DC based Riggs Bank was just a stalwart of the Washington community and outstanding bank. And then in 2005 had a huge issue relating to money laundering, in particular for banking embassy personnel and politically exposed persons and not filing the right SARS, enough SARS, accurate SARS. And and I, I was reminded of a meeting that we had at the Federal Reserve Bank where they brought in a number of large institutions that the State Department was there, Fed was there, Treasury. And the issue was that in reaction to the rig scandal and the scrutiny and investigations, a lot of institutions were 
making the decision to de-risk by not banking embassies anymore. And they kind of excoriated us about the national importance of banking embassies and State Department said it's really important to them that we not throw all of these customers out. And then, you know, the senior management would then look at the lawyers and risk managers and say, okay, but what's the protection that we don't end up with a problem? And there isn't any protection. And so although you balance it, you think about it, at the end of the day, it's hard not to come away from some of these thinking you know, I know what they say they want, but until they're willing to put their money where their mouth is by giving us some type of insulation from scrutiny or prosecution, we're just not going to do it. And so I think that's also a part of what, you know, plays into all of the kind of defensive SARS, de-risking and, and all of these mindsets. Yeah, I remember when we were talking about rigs, it reminded me right after rigs had sort of exploded on the front page, I was looking at a U.S subsidiary of a foreign bank looking at their overall AML program and they're kind of walking through the different products they had and at some point one of the products was mentioned to me and they were referring it to as embassy banking and then they were just moving on to the next product and I was like hey wait 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 what's embassy banking <laughs> and it was had nothing to do with the banking of embassies <laughs> and they seemed not to have been paying attention to rigs just a product that's funny yeah they continued to be the product name and I said you know I have a suggestion right on the cuff here you need to maybe rebrand that product and call it anything but embassy right. banking but it was funny they were like what are you, why are you well, at least I thought it was funny so when the Patriot Act was passed in 2001, Bitcoin and you know virtual currencies were really the stuff of science fiction movies. I mean, nobody had really conceptualized those things, and the, and the law certainly didn't contemplate virtual currencies. And you know, as we sit here 20 years later, certainly it appears as if cryptocurrencies are here to stay. And like it or not, banks and regulators are going to need to adapt. So how has the change in money laundering law? brought cryptocurrency and other non-traditional forms of value transfer into focus. This has been an increasing issue as the rise in Bitcoin and other non-traditional value transfers has become more widespread and accepted. And saw the news that my old bank bank in New York, Mellon, is going to be doing custody for cryptocurrencies and, you know, exchange. So it's becoming much, much more mainstream. And, you know, the government is increasingly concerned, understandably, that criminals were going to are turning to these mediums to try to launder money. And, you know, in 2020, November 2020, DOJ seized over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin tied to the drug sales and other illicit activities on the Silk Road marketplace before they shut it down. So what's interesting here is law enforcement and bank regulators have been arguing up until this point, that pre-existing anti-money laundering authority could reach these transactions, reach transactions involving cryptocurrency. But the, truthfully, the application of the pre-existing AML regulations to cryptocurrency has is, is been a bit of a round hole and a square peg. And so the AMLAW tries to adapt to the new technology by expressly uh, including in the definition of financial institution and money transmitting business uh, those engaged in, quote, the exchange or transfer of value that substitutes for currency. So this solidifies, I would say, the position the government has taken that the BSA applies to cryptocurrency. And so now going forward, this will be, you know, there will not be any questions about whether or not it's included in its, its scope. And we'll, you know, see what these new horizons look like in terms of enforcement and risk mitigation. 
Thanks, Matt. So suspicious activity reports are what banks use to submit reports of potential illicit activity detected within their institutions to FinCEN, which maintains a law enforcement SAR information sharing repository. And so outside of the banks and their obligation to report suspicious activity to FinCEN, SARs are supposed to be kept strictly confidential. When the fact that a large volume of SAR filings had been leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the same group that broke the Panama Papers story, and ultimately released it publicly in September 2020, it kind of gave a window into some particularly horrifying money laundering activity, some of which involved some well-known and notorious figures. It also reminded the public of how really critical it is to keep the information contained in the SAR confidential since it can be very damaging to the institutions and its customers, and it also can undermine ongoing law enforcement matters. Despite all of this and the increased scrutiny around SAR security, AMLA 2020 has proposed a pilot program in which SAR information could be shared outside of the U.S., Can you explain what that consists of and what the potential upsides are to banks and regulators? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's two related questions. One, you're absolutely right. Panama Papers, ugly, ugly chapter in unauthorized disclosures and, you know, certainly underscores the risks of the information in SARS being inappropriately, uh, illegally made public and disclosed. Lots of risks around that. But, you know, this is really designed to address a practical issue that our multinational bank clients uh, have, which is because of the restrictions, you have situations where a bank's right hand may not know what its left hand is doing because you're not able to share that type of suspicious activity. And so you may be, you know, in thinking about how to approach a client in one jurisdiction and another jurisdiction that's it's got that same client isn't able to benefit from what's going on. So I, I think, although there may be some risks, there's real upside to regulators and banks with foreign operations and foreign parents and branches to deal with how, again, this question of how to share information contained in SARS across borders to affiliates in other countries. There has been FinCEN guidance traditionally meant to address this, but I think this will go further. And it gives Treasury a year to issue rules after the M laws passed to create this pilot program that you referred to for financial institutions to share information related to SARS uh, with the institutions, foreign branches, subsidiaries, affiliates, all for the purpose of combating illicit finance risk is what the statute says. So, again, I think this is going to be net helpful for banks with foreign operations, both U.S. banks as well as state chartered and other foreign banks that operate in the U.S. There are jurisdictional carve-outs, uh, China and Russia, which the Treasury Secretary can waive. But, you know, again, it's the big picture is it's a pilot program set to last for three years. It can be extended upon a showing by the Treasury that it's useful. But I think it's an important step, again, recognition of some of the challenges the industry, financial services industry has been facing, and hopefully will be net beneficial to them and to the regulators. Well, it, it seems almost like the logical progression uh, and of a maturation of an anti-money laundering compliance program. You know, I mean, years ago, you remember one of the things that plagued banks was the lack of a persistent customer identifier for customers who had multiple banking products. 
where a bank couldn't readily say, you know, Matt Bybin has a CD, he has a mortgage with us, he has, you know, these other products that are used. Each of them was a separate and like disambiguated yep. product. And we couldn't see the whole picture with regard to that bank customer. This sort of extends that across international borders, which right. Good sense. And right. You could have, I mean, again, I've had clients, uh, foreign banks where a client of theirs may have U.S. bank accounts, but may also have bank accounts in Europe or in South America. And those entities are organized as different banks, obviously. One's a, you know, they're subsidiaries of a holding company. It could be a foreign holding company, and you may not be able to share. This, again, hopefully helps move that ball forward. Oh, it makes, makes good sense. So for years, the U.S. government has been very vocal in advocating for other countries to take steps to force more transparency onto legal entities, requiring them to identify beneficial owners and creating uh, tracking databases of those entities and their beneficial owners. And yet, until very recently, many U.S. states enabled corporations and other types of legal entities to be established without the same types of transparency. So what, what has changed? How has AMLA 2020 addressed this? And what about the change in this law is imperfect? This is the Corporate Transparency Act component, uh, which establishes a beneficial ownership registry within FinCEN. And many of us have been talking about this idea or idea like it for years, have written on it. By way of backdrop, Bank, Bank Secrecy Act requires institutions, covered institutions, to identify beneficial owners of companies. And in 2016, FinCEN issued the CDD rule, Customer Due Diligence Rule, requiring financial institutions to obtain and verify beneficial ownership for customers at the time an account is open. The idea behind the Corporate Transparency Act is to help crack down on anonymous shell companies that have been used by money launderers. And it, it shifts or better, maybe better put, shares the burden uh, so that it doesn't only fall on the financial institution through its KYC and, and CDD to all reporting companies. And that's very broad. Those are covered by the CTA. And um, that includes companies incorporated under state or tribal law or foreign companies registered to do business in the United States. Shell companies, as I said, are really the target. So it excludes financial institutions, nonprofits, larger companies with 20 or more employees or 5 million or more in revenues. But all the other, you know, potential shell companies, smaller companies are now subject to the jurisdiction. And so there's a lot of questions that come out of what this the registry will mean, but you know the CTA directs the Secretary of the Treasury to revise the CDD rule. She's got one year to do it, but to conform it with the financial institution's beneficial ownership requirements and to reduce the unnecessary or duplicative burdens on financial institutions. So it's a bit of like a question mark of what that will mean because the Treasury Department is going to leave in place the requirements that financial institutions have to identify and verify beneficial owners, but they're also going to be reconsidering that as part of what this registry looks like. And so until we have more specific regulations promulgated by the Secretary of Treasury, it's hard to know what this will really mean. But as a result, the kind of effects are going to be seen in the future. But it certainly raises questions which speak to your point of why it's imperfect, which is 
is it going to eliminate altogether the CDD requirements on banks and just put it on, you know, the shell company or the company at the registry? Or instead, is it going to be a verification tool where you have these dual tracks, bank has to do what it's always done, and then it checks the registry and to verify whether its information is valid? Is it a one-stop, you know, source? Do you not have to do any more investigation of a customer other than take their information and, and go to the registry? And then what happens? What if the information is inconsistent? You know, what do you do if the information you get by way of your KYC is inconsistent with what's in the registry? What if the, the customer of the company isn't registered at all when they should be? Do you need to file SARS? What's the, so there's, you know, all kinds of questions, I think, yet to be answered and to be seen. Again, I think it's important. It's helpful. It's positive. But there's a lot to be seen. And just on the other points about imperfect, and this is more theoretical than practical, but it clearly is a federal incursion into what has traditionally been the province, an exclusive province of state law, which is the formation of corporations and uh, governance. That is a that has always been state law uh, in our federal uh, system. And now you have a federal registry that is required of all companies, regardless of where they're incorporated, that you know fit the, within the definition, uh, including, as I said, tribal corporations and others. And there's some privacy concerns for legitimate, not for shell companies, but for, you know, for legitimate businesses, there's a burden and an expense and some privacy concerns. So it, it's not perfect, but uh, I think big picture for larger institutions, it should be helpful. Thanks, Matt. So the new law requires Treasury to establish public priorities for anti-money laundering and for countering the financing of terrorism policy within 180 days, and then align regulatory exams accordingly. I mean, on its face, it certainly seems logical that the government's AML and CTF priorities should inform then regulatory exams. What can we expect to see, though, in terms of what those priorities coming out of Treasury might look like? Let, let me just start by being very kind of realistic, again, having lived in this space for a long time, which is there is what comes out from the top by way of regulatory guidance and minimum standards and direction. And then there is what your on-site, local, central point of contact or examiner in charge, how he or she interprets that guidance. And that on a day-to-day -day basis at your institution uh, is the standard against which you have to you know, be judged. And so the top-down focus, I think, will be helpful because it will keep these issues, we'll have some regularity around and hopefully consistency around the issues to be focused on, what should be looked at in terms of the program, but it won't eliminate the kind of idiosyncratic issues that your local regulator sometimes presents, and that includes in this space. But, you know, the priorities, I, I think, will change every four years, which is how it's supposed to be uh, reflected, but certainly right now, there's this balance between the risks of money laundering and the need to combat it with, again, a focus on the underbanked populations and products like remittances and, and the like, and kind of a tension between wanting to make sure a certain segments of the population have access to those publics and to the financial services system, but yet also to mitigate and eliminate as much as possible the degree of money laundering risk that is in our system. So, you know, I think that's 
a tension that will have to play out and we'll just have to see how those regulations and priorities end up being articulated. So suspicious activity reports and currency transaction reports, CTRs, are, are both very important components of the U.S. financial services regulatory enforcement framework. And yet the monetary thresholds that require the filing of these two reports, they haven't been adjusted in decades. In 1970, in the case of CTRs. So there's language in AMLA 2020 that is an attempt at remedying that. Can you explain what's uh, been proposed here? Yeah. And this is all to address, and I mentioned it in passing earlier, but you know, there is, in some respects, the current system and over time, the process for filing SARS and CTRs is the worst of both worlds. Incredibly burdensome on the financial institution on the one hand, and simultaneously buries the enforcers and the regulators with so much information that they don't know what's wheat and what's chaff. And so, you know, as you said, the threshold for currency transaction reports was set at $10,000 in 1970. It has never been adjusted for inflation. You know, today that would be more than $60,000 and yet no change. And this lack of indexing, of inflation indexing, has resulted in a swelling of the reports. There were over 16 million CTRs filed last year. Similarly, the SAR thresholds that were set 20 years ago have never uh, really been updated. And there's over 2.7 million SARs that were filed 2019. So the AMLOT tries to address some of these criticisms, I think helpfully so, and requires the government to conduct formal reviews of the thresholds and ask the question of whether they should be adjusted and also to evaluate whether the filing process can be made less burdensome on institutions and also focuses on maintaining submissions, filings that have a high degree of usefulness to the enforcers. And that's critically important because it's you know long overdue that there is some feedback given to financial institutions, some back and forth, if you will. And so oftentimes you file, you know, SARS and you have no idea whether it's helpful or not. It goes into an abyss. And, you know, part of what they're going to do is part of this evaluation of what's useful to law enforcement or not is uh, periodically disclosed to financial institutions in summary form, but information on their SARS and what proved useful to federal or state or civil enforcement. And that's going to be helpful, I think, to institutions to get some kind of feedback. And similarly, they're going to publish, they say, at least twice a year, threat and trend information that will help provide meaningful information to the preparation of more valuable uh, SARS filings. So all of this is a step towards modernizing SAR filings, I think paves the way towards more unified SAR requirements. And there's some disconnect between FinCEN and the bank supervisors, times around exemptions and the like. But it's, again, a step, very positive step, I think, in the right direction. So in 2017, the FinCEN exchange was created, which it has now been formally codified in AMLA 2020. What What is the FinCEN exchange and, and what changes may be on the, the horizon as a result of the change in the law? Well, as you said, so in 2017, FinCEN created the FinCEN exchange, and it was to enhance information sharing with financial institutions. And so the idea is to improve collaboration between law enforcement 
and financial institutions. And there's a number of provisions designed to further promote that collaboration, uh, which again is helpful. It moves from a model of a punitive approach to financial institutions to at least, again, continuing with the alternative framework, which is of collaboration uh, that we saw, you know, early on in the 70s. Uh, and so there's both in this AM law, more penalties, as we said, but also there's more of these steps towards positive collaborative dynamics with the regulated institutions. And so, as you said, it formalizes the exchange by statute and requires the Secretary of the Treasury to periodically report to Congress about the utility. It allows of information in, again, in an appropriately confidential way and includes asking uh, the Secretary, directing the Secretary of Treasury to convene a stakeholders meeting, which again will further move towards finding strategies to increase cooperation between the public and private sectors. Thanks, Matt. So I we may have touched upon this a little bit preemptively, but you know we said the outset and, and then over the course of this episode, AMLA 2020 is important and very comprehensive set of any money laundering reforms, and you know arguably. Its passage has caused or should cause every institution's AML BSA compliance program and the controls underlying them. They're kind of now going to be out of sync with the legislation. What should banks and brokers and other organizations that have any money laundering obligations, what should they be doing to uh, make sure that they align with the new legislation? As we had said, Scott, and I'll just reiterate some of it, this is you know, if nothing else, it should be a wake-up call that the goalposts are moving or have moved again. And so your program needs to adjust. A hygiene check is in order uh, where you do a real comprehensive review of your AML BSA program. Whether a third party does that review or helps facilitate that review, again, I think it's a good idea. Not just speaking our book, I would feel that way if I was in-house as well. But you want to avoid uh, MRAs and worse that will come from not having done something in relation to the new legislation. And, you know, do you need to conduct a new risk assessment? Is your old risk assessment acceptable, but needs to be reinterpreted in light of the new guidance? Have you looked at your internal escalation procedures? What's your internal oversight? Who's at the table? Are they, you know, empowered? Are, you know, you get right disciplines, front, first line, second line, third line to some extent involved? Is your board getting what it needs? Are you giving the board enough information about the risks such that they can uh, execute their obligations and satisfy their uh, fiduciary responsibilities? You just want to make sure you're coming from a solid foundation. And that to me includes doing something now when it comes time to be evaluated, examined, or, you know, worse still, have a prosecutor who sends you a subpoena because they've got some concerns. I've said it before, but you got to look back at your old audits. you got to look back at your old regulatory exams and see if there are MRAs or MRIs or other indicia of issue around the program that just haven't gotten around to getting to. So to me, bottom line is, AML enforcement is going to be a priority going forward. That's crystal clear coming out of this legislation. And financial institutions and other affected companies really need to carefully consider this regulatory regime, stay focused on the new regulations, and review the effectiveness of their AML and related compliance programs. 
So you and I probably both get this question quite often from our clients, which is what's the appropriate interval at which we should do risk assessments? And usually, you know, you said it maybe every one or two years, but there's also the caveat, unless there's some sort of internal or external event that has so fundamentally changed your risk profile to then warrant doing a risk assessment shortly thereafter, or even in anticipation of that change. And clearly, this is something that falls within that, right? It's it's not just, oh, we're not set to do an, another risk assessment for two years. You can't just mindlessly follow it when something so, so noteworthy has, has been enacted. So yeah, no, so your point is, is really well taken. And I would think if I'm a director of a bank, I'm gonna be, I mean, one of the first questions I'm asking the general counsel, the chief risk officer, chief compliance officer is, I just read about this, what are we doing? I completely agree with you. Risk assessments like strategy you know, decisions, they, they need time to play themselves out, but you also have to be reviewing them and adjusting them in real time. So if you were gonna wait a year to do your risk assessment around business continuity, because it wasn't due until February, 2021, even though COVID hits in February, 2020, it seems like the, the wrong time to start trying to reassess just by way of example, and there's hundreds of them. But in this space, this is big, meaningful change. And again, if I'm a director, if I'm a CEO, I want to know somebody's thinking about these issues and doing something to help us mitigate the risk. Well, Matt, this has been so enlightening and such great information. I'm always impressed by your encyclopedic knowledge, and, and today is no exception. So thank you. So that's all the time we have today. And this has been you know, really, really helpful. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure uh, doing this with you today. So that was Gibson Dunn partner and AML expert, Matt Biden. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.